So welcome to all of you. Welcome to the new school. Our guest today is Walter Murch. Um, and I must say there are a number of people in town who uh, generate a, a sense of awe in me, and Walter is, is one of them. Um, one of the best introductions that you can find to Walter is a book by Michael Ondaatje called The Conversations, Walter Murch and the Art of Editing Film. And as an introduction, I just want to read a little bit from uh, Michael Ondaatje's book. He says, this book began, as all my books do, with sheer curiosity. I had met Walter Murch during the filming of The English Patient. I saw a lot of him during the months of his editing of the film, and we became friends. Walter was simply always interesting to listen to. The first time I actually sat down and talked to him about film was when his wife Muriel, a.k.a. Aggie, asked me to appear on her radio show on KPFA in Berkeley. I said I would be happy to, but could we make it a three-way conversation that included Walter? We talked with Aggie about our mutual crafts, and it made me want to have more conversations. The Conversations is made up of talks that took place during our meetings over the next year, starting in July 2000. We met whenever and wherever we could. Walter always surprised me with his ideas. George Lucas says he was originally drawn to Walter because he was, quote, strange like me, unquote. <laughs> My favorite lines in this book come when Walter remembers an incident that led to a technical solution for a film he was working on. Quote, For some reason I had put the recorder at one end of the African hall and stood at the other end and just shouted incomprehensible guttural speech. It echoed in a beautiful way and it was recorded. But there is nothing in the words of his recall of the incident to suggest this might be slightly abnormal behavior, especially as he admits it took place very late at night. The other quality that made me lucky in this project is that Walter has simply been in interesting places. He has worked on projects that have become central to the culture of our time. Um, most of all, Walter is a filmmaker whose interests are in no way limited to film. There are very few in Hollywood who could speak of Beethoven and bees, and Rupert Sheldrake and astronomy, and Guido D'Arezzo, is that how you say his name, Walter? Which? Guido D'Arezzo, is that? Uh, Dorezzo. with such knowledge. In fact, it soon became clear that the one weak link in Walter's knowledge was film history. So, uh, last section I'm going to read. Um, he is truly an oddity in the world of film, a genuine Renaissance man who appears wise and private at the center of various temporary storms to do with filmmaking and his whole generation of filmmakers. He has worked on the sound and or picture editing of such films as American Graffiti, The Conversation, The Godfather, Parts 1, 2, and 3, Julia, Apocalypse Now, The Unbearable Lightness of Being, Ghost, and The English Patient. Four years ago, he recut Touch of Evil following Orson Welles' ignored 58-page memo to Universal. He has written and directed Return to Oz, an ambitious sequel to The Wizard of Oz. He has written in the blink of an eye a sort of Zen and the art of editing, as pertinent for writers and readers as it is for filmmakers and audiences. Walter Murch, welcome to the new school. Thank you. So
So we're going to hear from you for about 45 minutes talking about the harmony of the spheres, and then we'll have a conversation and open it up for questions. Right. So the floor is yours. Okay. Um, let me just say uh, some personal things about what you're going to see, which uh, is sometimes as strange to me as it may seem to you. Uh, it's certainly strange that I fell down this particular rabbit hole uh, because as Michael was saying, my main focus of interest is film and very much uh, the, the films of the late 20th century and hopefully the early 21st century. Um, but I, I was working on a film in, in Los Angeles uh, a number of years ago and what I try to do um, especially when the deadline is very tight, as it was on this film, is uh, read something at night that is as far from what I'm doing as possible. And this, this I, I picked up a book by Arthur Kessler called The Sleepwalkers, which was, uh, is uh, a wonderful uh, examination of how uh, human beings came over the last 3,000 years to our present understanding of how the solar system and how the universe is put together. Um, his, his main focus was on uh, the, the Copernicus, Kepler, Galileo, and Newton, but in the course of uh, preparing the, the reader for those sections, he talked about uh, ancient Egypt and ancient Greece and Babylonia, and in particular, he was talking about the Pythagoreans uh, and their emphasis on number, that everything is number. Um, and he said that this was their great strength uh, because it was the first time that human beings had put such a, an emphasis on the idea of number. Um, but it was also their weakness because they conceived of number in um, uh, what we now think of as fairly limited terms. They, they didn't uh, ad admit to the idea of so what, what, what we now call irrational numbers. Uh, the square root of two, for instance, is a decimal that will go on forever if you let it, and, and that's why it's called uh, irrational, meaning you can't make a fraction that will produce that number. Um, and then there was a little footnote, and so I turned to the back and he said, well, lest you think I'm giving uh, the Pythagoreans too hard a time, consider Bode's Law. And he gave a thumbnail description of what Bode's Law was. And I had heard about this before because uh, one of my interests has, has been uh, astronomy. Um, but for some reason, I really, I focused on it that evening at 1130 at night. And... Um, also, uh, unusually, I, I thought, well, let me see what this is all about. And I had a little laptop computer and I took it out and started fooling with the numbers that, were, that make up Bode's Law and pushing them around. And uh, I remember very vividly the moment when I, I had come up with a formula that produced the same ratios as this uh, Bode's law, which is a, a, an 18th century law that predicts 
where the planets might be found, what, what the relative ratios of the distances of the planets would be. And there, there's a, a well-known formula uh, at that time. Um, and yet here, I had come up with an alternate formula that was seemed simpler that produced the same set of ratios. And that was where I thought, well, okay, this is, this is interesting to me. Um, how did that happen? What does this mean? So I started to dig into it. And um, the more I dug into it, the deeper I got into it. And over the next two or three months, uh, I, I found myself, uh, as Aggie will attest, uh, more than mildly obsessed with this. Uh, so it, it's, as, it's peculiar that I fell into that rabbit hole. Um, it has continued to obsess me over the last uh, more than a decade. Um, in between films, when I work on films, I go back to this and start and see if I can uh, take it any further. Um, I've given this presentation at some astronomy forums and uh, the, re the response has been interesting. Um, I've, I've been waiting for people to come up and say, well, you made an elementary mistake here, therefore everything past this is wrong. Um, that hasn't happened. On the other hand, people haven't come up to me and said, I absolutely believe everything that you said. So, because it, it's a very odd thing, what I'm going to talk about, which is a um, taking data that we now have from the Voyager probes and the Hubble telescope and the Keck, all, all of these fantastic uh, machinery that we have over the last 25 years, and applying it to a, an obscure and now conventionally discredited observation about the spacing not only of planets but of moons in the, the Jupiter system and the Saturn system and as it turns out in the exoplanets that we're discovering. So um, in addition to that, taking something from the 18th century and applying 21st century numbers to it, um, it also turned out that there was a musical component to this and that the ratios themselves make harmonic musical sense. Um, so it, it definitely straddles two periods of history in astronomy and it evokes this really ancient uh, idea of the Pythagoreans that there was some relationship between the idea of musical proportion and the uh, way in which planets were uh, organized. Um, this, this is different than the Pythagoreans. It's its own thing. Um, I, if Pythagoras were here, he, he might approve of it. I don't know. Uh, his, his idea was a uh, shaft of light into the darkness. It was really one of the first scientific hypotheses that we know of um, and a, a real conjecture about how the, how the universe was organized. Um, so um, what, I, what I'd like to do is just give you a brief bit of a background. Um, hopefully that will not take too long uh, and then go into... Um, what uh, the, the meat of what we're uh, going to be talking about. This, this year, actually, is the 400th anniversary of Galileo's use of the telescope. And so 400 years ago, right now, he was 
looking at the objects in the solar system and the stars uh, with the telescope, first human being ever to do this with, a, with his own design telescope. He didn't invent the telescope, but he designed it uh, in particular to give him a good look at what was going on. And in January of 1610, he discovered that Jupiter had four uh, what he called planets revolving around it. Um, Kepler, his uh, sometime correspondent and uh, co-equal in the uh, field of astronomy, um, was, was the one to dub them satellites. But um, that's his, his drawing that he did in 1610. So the, the, the four moons, the four main moons, which we call the Galilean moons of Jupiter are Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. They were romantic consorts of the god Jupiter, which is why they're uh, given the names that they were given. Last spring, uh, we have our first uh, uh, picture of a um, a distant star with three planets revolving around it. All of the exoplanets that we've been discovering over the last 15 years have been inferred by the motion that we've been detecting in the star, the central star, but until now, we've never actually had images of those planets. So this is a, a picture. Uh, the glob of color that you're seeing in the middle is really just the, the interference of the light, uh, which is so bright. Uh, that it, it creates this big ball of infrared light. But the three red dots, if you can see, labeled B, C, and D, uh, much less romantic than Io, Ganymede, and Callisto, um, are these three planets. Look, looked at more schematically, uh, this is those three planets, and they're very, very far from their central star. Uh, these distances are, are done in astronomical units. And so the Earth is one astronomical unit away from our Sun. The innermost of these planets is 24 times that distance from its star. Uh, the middle planet is about as far from its star as Pluto is from the Sun. So you can imagine how far away the outermost planet is. And yet, if you put the three outermost moons of Jupiter and those three planets together, the proportions of their orbits are frighteningly close with less than 1% deviation. Uh, but you can see that the Jupiter system, uh, the innermost uh, moon there, Europa, is 4,000th of a astronomical unit distance from Jupiter. So there's orders and orders of magnitude difference in these two systems, and yet there's a uh, proportional uh, identity between the two systems. And in fact, if we bring in the solar system, we get the same kind of alignment uh, between the Earth, Mars, and Ceres. That's a word you'll be hearing a lot. That's the largest and most central of the objects in the asteroid belt. It's now dubbed a minor planet, uh, like Pluto is now a minor planet. Uh, it's just not big enough nor exclusive enough to warrant the name planet these days, but it uh, 
it alone uh, accounts for one third of the mass of all of the asteroids in the asteroid belt, and there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of asteroids in the asteroid belt. So um, it, it stands uh, on its own two feet in comparison with some of the other planets. Uh, so um, here's a, um, an interesting uh, and provocative alignment uh, to, to start thinking about. Um, as I said in my introduction, this, uh, I, I plunged deeply into this before I really knew anything about all this stuff. And so what I'm presenting to you here at the beginning of the lecture is really the fruit of a lot of uh, research that's been uh, going on um, that I've been doing. Um, just to give you a sense of the, the, the flavor of this kind of approach. Until very recently, the, if you were a planetary astronomer, you were kind of like a botanist who had only one flower to study, let's say a daisy. And you knew a lot about that daisy and you could describe the particulars of that particular species. But since it was the only flower that you knew, you couldn't do anything like comparative studies. Uh, the solar system, until very recently, was the only solar system or star system that we knew about. And so this has constrained uh, the research and, and speculation uh, of planetary astronomy versus something like botany, because we can take a daisy and a rose and an orchid, and as different as those things look, we can boil the down the essential nature of what's going on and say, well, here's a stamen, here's a pistil, here's a petal, here's a stem, here's a bud leaf, uh, and even though they look different, they are fulfilling the same kinds of functions. We're beginning to be able to do that with um, planetary astronomy and lunar astronomy uh, because Jupiter and its moons, in a sense, is a miniature orbital system, as you'll see. Um, so here I'm comparing uh, a, an exoplanet system that we've just discovered, the solar system, part, part of it anyway, and the three largest moons of Jupiter, all of which have this uh, kind of uncanny alignment to them. So uh, what I'm hoping is that the, um, what I'm investigating will be at least a tool that will allow people to begin this sort of botanical examination of orbital systems. We're also gonna be talking about music and, um, and yet I'm going to be describing it graphically as well as sonically. So the notes of the scale all relate to vibrations of air. Uh, the note E in our scale is defined as 330 vibrations per second. And C uh, above that is 528. And the two of them played together make a chord. Uh, and the ratio between those two notes is the same ratio as you can see here, 8 to 5, or 1.6. So here's the sonic. Uh, Can you all hear that? What I'm going to do is show you these chords, but as circles. It's a little paradoxical, but bear with me. Think of, imagine a circle with a radius of 330 
something, miles, inches, uh, meters, it doesn't really matter, uh, and then compare that circle to a larger circle that has a radius of 528 somethings and look at it and listen to it at the same time. And leaping ahead for a moment, let's look at the moons of Jupiter and their ratios and listen to those ratios. I did this in a key, it's the key of C, but I could have done it in any key. Uh, all we're really talking about are ratios, and as you know, for those of you who play the piano or a musical instrument, you can transpose from one key to another, preserving the ratios of the notes. I had to make a choice here, and I just chose the key of C uh, to do this, um, but um, it's, it's purely arbitrary. What we're really talking about in all of this are uh, ratios rather than any absolute value. As you can see earlier, we were comparing three systems which were wildly different in size, and yet the ratios of the objects in those systems were proportionately the same. So the same thing applies to sound and, and music. If you don't know this word, it's a very useful word and one that I think about a lot, which is apophenia which is the tendency of human beings to see patterns where none exist. <laughs> so I'm wildly aware of that as I plunge forward <laughs> here. Um, but uh, if you look at the history of human beings, uh, the cultural history of human beings, it's a relentless assault on apophenia. We are people, we are creatures who detect patterns. And uh, the the progress that we make frequently is people seeing patterns where people have not seen patterns before. Um, there are many cases of people seeing patterns where absolutely none exist, and that might be the case in this case, uh, but this is the, the tightrope that uh, we're walking here, is uh, uh, this ap apophenic tightrope, and we're going to plunge ahead regardless. And these are the two guys that we'll be meeting uh, a lot. The Johann Titius, his real name was Dietz. Uh, he was German, but they, uh, scientists would Latinize their name to make it a little more elegant. Um, and he came up with this series of ratios, and, and yet he was not, he didn't have a big soapbox. Johann Bode, who was a little younger than him, uh, was the director of the Berlin Observatory uh, toward the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century. He had a very big soapbox and megaphone, and he popularized this law, uh, which, which in his lifetime became known as a law. Everyone believed that it was absolutely true. Um, and, um, and so the, this law is frequently called Bode's Law, uh, sometimes the Titius Bode Law. Sixteen hundred, seventeen hundred years earlier, 
than these two guys, uh, the, the greatest astronomer in the history of human beings, if you judge by the length of time that he was believed to be true, was Ptolemy, who came up with um, the, the organization uh, of the solar system, which he called the universe, uh, or the world, uh, it was also called, um, that lasted from when he published his book until Copernicus began to overthrow it, and then Kepler and Galileo uh, did even more to overthrow it, and then Newton finally put the cap on it. Um, but, you know, 1600 years at least, 1500 to 1600 years, where this organization, the system was believed to be true, and it was the, what we know as the geocentric system, that the Earth is the center of the system, there's the green Earth in the middle, and that the Sun was one of the planets that revolved around the Earth. The Moon was considered also to be a planet, as were Mercury, Venus, and all of the other so-called naked-eye planets up to Saturn, which was the furthest out that human beings can see with the naked eye. Um, and it was a very coherent, well-developed system that was actually very accurate uh, about predicting uh, when eclipses would occur, when certain stars would line up with certain planets, when certain planets would line up in with each other. Um, and because it uh, depended on common sense, the Earth doesn't seem to move, everything else seems to move, uh, it fit what we feel uh, as, certainly as children and maybe even as adults, to be the case. And there was this musical component which went right alongside it from the earliest Pythagorean days, 600 BC, um, that this got very fully developed from Pythagoras through Pico della Mirandola up to somebody named Robert Flood, um, who was a big antagonist to Galileo and Kepler, a uh, contemporary of theirs. And um, the, the whole relationship between the Earth and God uh, was seen to span two octaves. Uh, I'll spare you all of the intervening notes, but the Earth, the ground, was G, M midway was the sun, an octave up, and then God, to another octave up. And everything fit in between. Uh, in addition to that, every planet had a corresponding day of the week and a corresponding god from ancient, the ancient world, a corresponding attribute, these global concepts of purity, war, knowledge, communication, time, justice, and a metal. Uh, the, there were only seven known metallic substances in the ancient world, uh, silver, mercury, copper, gold, iron, tin, and lead, and they also corresponded to the seven notes of the musical scale.
this was all the, the, the foundations of this seemingly permanent knowledge began to be uh, nibbled away at very dramatically by our, uh, the first of our modern era astronomers, Copernicus, who uh, simply switched the positions of the sun and the earth. So the sun was in the center and the earth was a horse on this celestial merry-go-round um, where the sun used to be and the moon, which used to be a planet, he decided, as we now agree, certainly, that the, the moon was a satellite of, of the earth. And um, all of the, the, the work that was subsequent uh, to that from Kepler, Galileo, Newton, and uh, the great astronomers of the 18th and 19th centuries was uh, founded on this and simply solidified uh, and perfected the uh, basic architecture that, uh, that Copernicus came up with. This is our friend, uh, this is a reconstruction of his skull, which was discovered a number of years ago. Uh, he lived to be 70 years old. Um, many years earlier, he was a young man. This is his own self-portrait. He was a talented painter as well. And during his studies in Italy, he visited uh, Rome. Um, and I'm speculating, uh, this is one of the side products of this research, I'm speculating that he visited the Pantheon, um, which was the only, and still is, the only complete uh, building from ancient Rome that still has a roof and all of its fingers and toes. Um, and you, you can go in there and experience, if you ignore the Christian trappings of it, you experience a perfectly preserved piece of pagan architecture. It was a church, it was consecrated in 600, um, St. Mary of the Martyrs. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons it's preserved is that uh, it was not seen to be a pagan temple, and so it was not looted for its stone or, or uh, lead uh, on the roof. There, one of the questions uh, about Copernicus is, where did this idea come from? Because he, uh, he was a churchman. He was a canon in Poland uh, and got all of his money from the church, and yet here he was overturning uh, one of the basic precepts of uh, ecclesiastical uh, lore, which was that the earth is in the center. Uh, all of Dante's Inferno and all of our, our ideas about where God is and where the devil is and uh, were based on the, the Ptolemaic idea of earth being in the middle. Um, and so he threw this over and the question is, where did this come from? Well, he had heard about a theory from ancient Greece, an astronomer named Aristarchus, who had come up with this idea that the earth was not the center, that the sun was the center, and the earth rotated, uh, revolved around the sun. Um, but what was it that made him clinch onto this idea? A speculation that I, I, I had is that if you, if you go into the uh, Pantheon, you'll see that it's a dome, um, we, we believe it was built by Emperor Hadrian, and in the middle of the dome is what's called an oculus, the source of light for the whole building. 
surrounded by a series of concentric rings. Hadrian was a Mithraist, meaning that he worshipped the sun. Um, you can sometimes see the sun, and you can certainly see sunlight through this oculus. And it was believed by the ancient Romans who came after this that this dome represented the celestial vault. So if you go into the Pantheon and look up at this central light surrounded by concentric rings, um, and if you're predisposed to be thinking that the sun is in the center of the solar system, uh, it might push you over the edge. And this is uh, the uh, section of his book where he's, he's making the, the boldest part of his case, which uh, says, but in the midst of all stands the sun, for who could in this most beautiful temple, meaning the solar system, but here we are in a pagan temple, place this lamp uh, in a better place than the center from whence it can illuminate the whole. His book was called On the Revolutions. Uh, but by the way, that's where we get the word revolution. He was simply talking about the revolutions of the sun and the planets, uh, yet it caused such an upheaval in our idea of how the universe was organized that ever since, anytime there's a big upheaval, we call it paradoxically, the revolution. But if you then take his drawing, as I did, and superimpose it over the vault of the Pantheon, you get an uncanny alignment of the two things. There's, no, there's nothing other than this and the circumstantial evidence that uh, Copernicus spent some time in Rome in 1500 uh, to make the connection. So whether we'll ever be able to say anything more than what you're looking at, I don't know. But it's, uh, it's an intriguing uh, possibility that this ancient pagan temple built by a Mithraist who worshipped the sun was indirectly responsible for this upheaval in our view of the cosmos that is something that we are... Uh, um, very familiar with today. I think what I'm going to do is... Take your time. It's too good. Just... Okay. <laughs> Take your time. Take the One of the big benefits of Copernicus uh, was that if the Earth is a moving platform, we can use that platform to figure out how far away the other planets are. If the Earth is in the center, there was no way in the old Ptolemaic system to figure out how far anything was away. It's like you, you couldn't triangulate uh, anything. Uh, but if you suppose that the Earth is a moving platform, um, you can say, if this, then that. And Copernicus was the first person to come up with the relative distances of the planets. Uh, this drawing was, was, even on his own terms, this was a schematic drawing. Um, what he really believed the planets to be was this, um, which is not far from what it actually is. Yeah, which is that. Yeah, so that's Copernicus and down arrow. That's what we believe today. So he was very, very close. Um, in addition to the problems of uh, whether the Earth is moving or not, or whether it's the center, this 
created a huge upheaval in the whole idea that there was organization to our cultural universe. Uh, now, if there were, we've demoted the moon from being a planet to a satellite of the Earth, which means there aren't seven planets as there were in the ancient system, there are six planets. Uh, so now the correspondence between the seven gods, the seven metals, the seven days of the week, the seven uh, notes in the musical scale is, uh, is uh, out the window, if we're going to believe it. So a lot of the resistance to Copernicus's idea came not only from the fact that you mean we're not the center of the universe anymore, but all of the superstructure that had depended on this system was also put at risk. And this obsessed uh, the next guy in our uh, uh, history, who, who was Johann Kepler, uh, who was the first official scientist to believe that Copernicus was right. And what bothered him was, why six? I thought it was seven. And if it is six, how could God make something that isn't perfect? Seven is perfect. Uh, but six is not, so there must be some deeper reason uh, for six planets and for them to be the distances apart that they, that they happen to be. He was teaching a class one day and he was drawing the orbits, uh, the Copernican orbits, and he noticed that the, there was an an imaginary equilateral triangle between the orbits of Saturn and Jupiter. And this got him very excited for a while, uh, but he realized that, uh, and he drew a square within the next one and a, a pentagon within the next, and it didn't work out. And he also realized that that wouldn't tell him why there were six planets, because there's an infinite number of polygons. So he came up with this idea, uh, which is that it's, it's, it was known since antiquity that there were five uh, perfect solids. That is, solids like the cube, the tetrahedron, and the isocahedron, and others, uh, that had, were made up of facets which were identical to each other. The simplest one of them is the cube but they all obey that law. This one down on the bottom is made up of eight equilateral triangles. Uh, the one, one down is four equilateral triangles. But there, there are, it can be proven, and Euclid proved it, that there are only five possible of these. And Kepler suddenly, the light went off, and he said, if, there's, if we can imagine these shapes in between the orbits of the planets, then that's an explanation for why there are six, because there are five intermediate spaces, Let's see if I can fit these shapes into the spaces. And so he had this uh, diagram built, or this model built on the right, uh, which went some distance to explaining for him how it all worked. It looks crazy to us today. And he didn't imagine that there were physically these things, but in some kind of godlike abstract sense that there were these shapes, and this would uh, be the capstone on why they were the proportions they were and why uh, there were only six planets. Of course, today we know there are nine planets, uh, actually eight planets and two uh, minor planets. Uh, 
um, or dwarf planets. So uh, his, we, we are tolerant of Kepler's uh, investigation because in the process of trying to prove it, he came up with what are now known as his three laws, which concern the ellipticity of orbits and the speed of the planet around the orbit and the relationship of the distance of the planet to the time that it takes. He didn't put much stock by these. These, these were simply observations that he made trying to prove this, uh, which was his, the, he spent the next 30 or 40 years of his life trying to certify that this was true. Um, Newton ransacked uh, Kepler's writings, discarded all of this stuff, and pulled out these three laws, which Kepler didn't even call laws, nor did he enumerate them, but Newton did, and every physics student studying physics and astronomy learns Kepler's three laws. He became uh, a worker for and a friend with an arrival of the greatest observational astronomer of the time, the Danish Tycho Brahe, um, who had these fantastically accurate order of magnitude better figures. So Kepler felt that the reason he couldn't make this fit was he didn't have good enough numbers. So he went to Tycho and got, these, got access to Tycho's books. Uh, and in fact, when Tycho died, he stole them uh, from Tycho's heirs uh, and had himself made imperial mathematician um, of, at the, the Holy Roman Empire. Um, trying to use these numbers to prove it. Um, a uh, side note of interest is that this uh, frontispiece to one of Brahe's books and the, the, the crests that you see on, on his, uh, in that little arch uh, are the families from whom he's descended. And one of the families is the Rosencrantz family and another family is the Guildenstern family. And they were, in fact, two, ro two noble families of the Danish court, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And uh, the, the young nephews of, this, uh, of these families were sent, in fact, to negotiate something with Queen Elizabeth. And a young playwright at the time <laughs> took note of their uh, scandalous behavior in the pubs of London at the time and made a note, note to self, need foolish Danish people, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. <laughs> in, in fact, uh, Rosencrantz got into trouble later. He seduced uh, a girl in the court and was sentenced to have his finger, his thumbs cut off, uh, and his nobility taken away, and he ran off to Tycho, who was then in Czechos what now is Czechoslovakia, in Prague, to beg for forgiveness, and Tycho pulled some strings and had it commuted to, you can keep your thumbs and your nobility, but you have to go fight the Turks. And he sent uh, Rosencrantz on a carriage ride with Kepler from Prague to Vienna because he was trying to save money by bundling them both in the same carriage. So it's an odd, uh, wonderful juxtaposition of uh, what we know as literature, but is in fact some kind of strange history. 
This is uh, Kepler's law of ellipticity. Uh, every idea before is that planets traveled in circles. In fact, up until this time, what really moved was the circle, like, the, like a wheel, and the planet was like a rivet on the edge of the wheel. And so when they talk about the harmony of the spheres, uh, what they're really talking about are these rotating spheres or circles, and the planet is really a passenger on this wheel. It's a little more complicated than that because it was a passenger on a subwheel, uh, but um, in broad strokes, uh, planets were not seen to move in space. They were moving because they were part of something. And what Kepler uh, figured out based on the great precision of Tycho Brahe's figures was that these planets traveled in ellipses. And it's as silly to think of an elliptical wheel as it is uh, in the sky as it is of an elliptical wheel of a carriage. And that was the beginning of our understanding that these were actual objects that moved on their own in space. Kepler didn't like the fact that they were ellipses. Uh, he, uh, uh, he would rather that God had made them circles, but <laughs> he, was, uh, he, was a, a, he was enough of a scientist to uh, believe uh, Tycho's numbers, which are in fact very precise, and he wouldn't alter his theories to fit the, uh, the numbers, which is the first sign of a, somebody who's a real scientist. Um, so he was presented with this conundrum, which is that, oh, they're ellipses. Well, why would God do that? And Kepler, uh, like Pythagoras uh, more than 2,000 years earlier, uh, made the leap to music and believed that if we think that the planets move at different speeds as they move around the ellipses, which is Kepler's second law, maybe the speeds correspond to different notes in the musical scale. And so uh, Mercury, which you can see in the lower middle of the lower bar, is the most elliptical of all the inner planets, and so it has, and therefore moves fastest and slowest, the greatest range, so the, the notes that it would produce as it went around would be this uh, great um, uh, jump in from low to high. Uh, Venus, which is almost perfectly spherical, doesn't have any variation at all. And here, here is the musical uh, sound that goes with this picture.
In fact, this is true, meaning if you transpose the speeds of the planets, uh, even using figures from the 21st century, uh, into uh, frequencies, you do get this sound. So it, uh, there's, um, there's nothing more to be said about that because from when Kepler died, people abandoned this approach. It, they, got, they began to be fascinated with uh, the precision with which they could calculate things and that led to uh, Newton and Newton's ideas of universal gravitation and everything that came from that, which is basically the world that we live in now, uh, diverged from this idea of some fusion of music and um, the uh, orbits of the planets or the speed at which the planets uh, moved um, until now. So uh, what I'm going to uh, take you on now, and I'm wildly over my time here. But, but let's, let's uh, we really are appreciating it, so <laughs> keep, keep wildly over okay. your time. Um, is uh, uh, another approach to this idea of, of harmony. Kepler's approach is very different than Pythagoras's approach. Pythagoras, his idea was a true leap into the unknown uh, that uh, where he simply didn't have the data to support what he was proposing. Uh, and as we got more data, it was clear that Pythagoras was wrong. Um, Kepler took another approach. There's nothing in the data we have today to contradict anything about this system. It's just that it didn't seem to be the way that science was going. And the split between music and geometry and astronomy, uh, three, three things along, and four things along with arithmetic, which had been seen as part of the essential knowledge that anyone going to university had to have. It was called the quadrivium. Uh, arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy um, began to come apart as part of the, um, the side effect of the revolution that Copernicus and then Kepler, Galileo, and Newton had, were slamming these wedges into ancient knowledge. And Kepler's was the last of the ancient knowledge attempt to make some sense to hold the quadrivium together. So there was a long period of silence uh, about uh, anything to do with why the planets are the distances that they are until this gentleman, Johann Dietz or Titius. Um, and long before copyright uh, or any of these ideas, he was translating a French book on uh, the the on nature, and he added his own observation while he was translating it uh, about the distances of the, uh, the planets. So what, what Titius came up with sounds a little bit like uh, a recipe from Joy of Cooking. Uh, he said, start with zero 
jump to one and then double everything after that. So one, two, four, eight, 16, 32, et cetera. Take each of those numbers and multiply them by three. Zero times three is zero. Uh, everything else gets much bigger. Add four to that. Um, and then divide that by 10. And you get a series of numbers that are in a ratio to each other. Uh, four, 0.4 is uh, four tenths of one. Um, uh, and so on. But if you compare those numbers to the actual proportional distances of the planets, you find that the numbers uh, correspond quite closely. Uh, it's not 0.4 uh, for Mercury, it's 0.39. It's not Mars is uh, the furthest out, it's not 1.6, it's 1.52. Everything is based on the ratio of Earth. So it's all comparing the orbit of the Earth. So Venus is 70% of the Earth's orbit. In fact, it's 72% of the Earth's orbit. And the, the, this uh, observation says that Mercury is 40% of the Earth's orbit. In fact, it's 39%. So the, the Earth is the, the, everything is being compared to the, what we now call the astronomical unit, which is the orbit of the Earth. And in both cases, they, it, by, almost by self-definition, it winds up to be one. There was a gap in this uh, because this system said that there should be a planet somewhere between Mars and Jupiter. But we didn't know, we didn't know that there was any planet there. And if you look at it, if you look at those ratios um, graphically represented, and then compare them with the actual orbits, you get something like this. And there's the mysterious unoccupied orbit um, somewhere in the middle. Bode, who was a, Johann Bode, who was a generation younger than Titius, came along and, like a young scamp, he appropriated Titius's observation into a book that he was writing uh, called Instructions of Knowledge for the Starry Heavens. Uh, and he put the formula, he, he stood it up on some algebraic legs so that it looks more official than the joy of cooking recipe. Um, <laughs> The exponential x he defined as minus infinity and then the jump to 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, etc. out as far as you care to go. Um, that's a peculiar jump. Uh, the same, the, there was the same jump in Titius's formula. Uh, it was just hidden a little bit more. Here it, it's exposed and it's a little strange, but it seemed to fit the facts. In 1781, the German-British astronomer Herschel discovered the next planet out, Uranus, and the Italian Piazzi discovered uh, Ceres, uh, the, what we now know as the center of the asteroid belt. 
and these were the first planets ever to be discovered using a telescope. So they're the first non-naked eye uh, objects in the solar system other than the, the moons of some of the planets. But when we took the positions of those two newly discovered planets, we could fit them nicely into the series of numbers uh, relating to Bode's law. Uh, the green are the new ones, and Ceres fits within one, just over 1%, and Uranus fits like 2%. So this was kind of the holy grail of any scientific theory. It, uh, it had predicted something which fit the known facts, and it predicted that should we find objects, they should appear here and here. And in fact, within uh, a decade or two, two you know, uh, very uh, exciting discoveries were made, these first non-naked eye planets, and they fit this system. So the, the Bode's, uh, uh, the Titius Bode observation began to be called a law from this point uh, on. But it had its enemies. This man, uh, who was a generation younger than Bode, uh, also German, was known as kind of the Mozart of mathematics of the, of the 19th century. Um, many, many things that we do in mathematics today are because of him. And he felt that everything was, there was something fishy about what was going on here. It fit the facts, but he didn't like that jump that, that things went from minus infinity to zero. Why would they do that? There's that jump. He also said there are too many numbers in that. If, if you show me uh, birds sitting on a wire and ask me to calculate the distances between the birds and allow me to have lots of arbitrary numbers in the formula, I can do it. Um, so there, there were only eight planets known at the time, and yet you have these four numbers and so that seemed to him to be uh, a fishy, something something strange going on there. Too few planets. Um, if if there if there were forty planets and you had those three oh, those four numbers, then things might be okay. But um, the the number of planets eight and the number of arbitrary constants four was uh, that didn't smell right to him. And then there was no known reason why this should be true. There, people were very uh, good at doing Newtonian kind of calculations by this time, and they couldn't figure out why it should be true. So the challenge that Gauss laid down in 1805 was, okay, if this really is going to be a law, it has to, we have to address these four uh, problems. If, if we had discovered Uranus, the, the next planet out, which fit the sixth uh, thing of Bode's law, then what about, maybe there's something further out. Uh, maybe, and, and it would most likely be at the next predicted orbit uh, where uh, the exponential function would be seven. 
And Neptune, in fact, was discovered in 1846 by a French astronomer, but it didn't fit. It was way off, and that kind of began the, the, the legal proceedings against Bode's Law, which had, had a, a happy life of about uh, 75 years. Um, but the fact that Gauss, who was this powerhouse of mathematics, said, you know, it's not really solid as a mathematical, physical law, and now there's this new planet that doesn't fit, um, it, it began to uh, slide into the obscurity into which it is still uh, buried. In addition, uh, many, many uh, objects in the asteroid belt had been begun to be discovered along this time, and uh, only Ceres, the biggest, admittedly, uh, made a nice fit, but now there were dozens of objects uh, that didn't fit. So people began to be less enthusiastic about uh, this law, and it began, if it was referred to at all, it was referred to as a rule um, rather than a law. So there's, uh, Neptune is off by an order of magnitude compared to everything else. And night fell on Bode's Law. <laughs> In 1929, uh, the situation was pretty much the same as it had been in the middle of the 19th century. But the next year, Pluto was discovered. And Pluto fit Bode's law. It was where we thought we would find Neptune. And yet the law had descended so far into obscurity that nobody remarked upon this at the time. So if we were to look at the solar system, including Pluto, and compare the predicted orbits with the actual orbits, forgetting Neptune for the moment, uh, we have a very nice uh, Bodian system, uh, but there's that annoying problem of Neptune. So, uh, one approach, which is the approach I took, which was not taken, is to think of Neptune as an outlier, as we call him now, or a renegade, uh, as something that... Uh, for some reason doesn't fit the fact, or is a fact that doesn't fit the rule. So my approach was to take Neptune, as big as it is, and put it onto a list of renegades and see what would happen as a result. Well, back to Mr. Gauss for a moment. He, he had this uh, problem with the jump. And I apologize here, I should have mentioned this before, but we do have some mathematics uh, that will appear on screen. Um, it's about as complicated as this, uh, so which is roughly ninth grade algebra, so um, bear with me. Um, but um, in the original formula, there was this exponential function x, and a, a jump in it, what would happen? What would it be so bad if we just got rid of it? Or got rid of that jump and made 
the exponential function uh, an infinite series from covering all the negative and positive numbers. What would happen if we did that? Well, that's the system, the graphic representation of the system uh, the way it was originally formulated. And here is the system with the new formula. So it's a series of concentric circles that get, uh, the distance between them gets smaller and smaller. Uh, in fact, it decreases by half. Each of those circles is half the distance, uh, the gap between the circles is half the distance of the preceding gap. Uh, and they approach a infinite, they infinitely approach a limit. If we look more closely at that, we see something like that, which is there's the sun in the middle, and Mercury is occupying the, the first, it's right at the limit of this series. And then there are, there, there are some, what we might call empty orbits, predicted but empty, uh, until we get to Venus. If we look even close, more closely at this and go out and look at the rings of Saturn, we see uh, something tantalizingly similar. I don't know what to make of that, but there it is. So the hypothesis here is, yeah, the formula can predict orbits, but not all of them have to necessarily be occupied. And this is a major division from the sort of theological uh, premise of the original argument, which is God is making things perfect, and the formula predicts this, and a formula that predicts things that are empty is not perfect. And so they never conceded this. In fact, Titius, when he saw that empty space between Mars and Jupiter, said, would God have left this empty? Impossible. There must be something there. In fact, it turned out that there was something there. But um, this is where Titius and Bode, were they part of this uh, meeting, would get up and leave the room because they wanted all the orbits to actually have something in them. Just to look at a metaphor, for instance, for a moment, if we look at the hydrogen atom, uh, we see the same idea of virtual or uh, predicted but empty orbits. The atom uh, has a series of uh, known orbits where an electron can orbit the central nucleus. Um, according to a law that was worked out at the beginning of the 20th century, similar to, but not significantly, not the same as what I'm talking about. Um, and an electron can occupy one of those orbits very definitely in that orbit. And if you add energy to it, some photons come in, it will jump immediately, depending on how many photons hit it, it will jump to a orbit further out. If, if it leaks photons, it will jump in. If it leaks one photon, it will jump one orbit in. So these orbits are mathematically there, uh, but they're occupied. Whether or not they're occupied has to do with how much energy the uh, electron actually has within it. 
And if you blast the elect uh, electron with enough energy, it will escape the hydrogen atom completely, and uh, the, that will become an ionized hydrogen atom. So th this comparison is, uh, you can't push it very far, but just by point of reference to this idea of uh, so-called virtual orbits, are, we're very familiar with these from atomic structures. So here in a spreadsheet uh, are represented these empty, predicted but empty orbits, empty anyway in the solar system. Can we simplify this formula? So there, it's got all these numbers in it. If we if we look at the graphic representation of the of the predicted solar system, we see that each prediction, the interval between each prediction is half of the previous prediction. So two and a, two point four. The next one is one point two. The next one is point six, and so on and it proceeds getting infinitely smaller all the way to this limit at some distance from the central star. If we look sideways at it, we're now looking at the, the orbits uh, sort of uh, sideways, and at a certain distance there is the central object, the sun in the case of the solar system, and there are no orbits up to a certain point, and then we start to have these predicted uh, possible orbits. Let's, for the purposes of argument, let's call that space beta B for Mr. Bode. And if we look at it carefully, we'll see that the Earth, we've, we've all, we always talk about the Earth being a distance of one astronomical unit from the Sun. It's, it's perfectly arbitrary. It's because we live on the Earth and we think in terms of units. And that's how Copernicus did it, and we've kept up going from it ever since. Based on that, the orbit of Mercury is somewhere around 40% of our distance from the Sun. That, coincidentally, is right at the beginning, the limit of this infinite series, which is getting, uh, going out uh, away from the Sun. But it's just as good to talk about the ratio of 0.4 to 1 as it is to talk about 1 to 2.5. So if we, if we think of the orbit of Mercury or the limit at that distance as, as being 1, so the value of beta in this case is 1, then by comparison the Earth is 2.5 times that distance. It's, it's, uh, it's a more Mercury-centric way of looking at the system, um, but uh, does it have any value? Let's call these, instead of astronomical units, AU, let's call them BU. Uh, and so the Earth has a, is 2BU distant from the Sun. And Mercury is around 1B distant from the Sun. In fact, if we multiply the Titius-Bode formula by 2.5, which is essentially what we just did in those two diagrams, all of the, or many of the, many of those complications disappear. And it, instead of being 4 plus 2n times 3 divided by 10, it's simply 1 plus 2n times 3. If we compare the two formulas, 
um, the numbers are simply two and a half times the old one. The ratios between the numbers remain the same because we've multiplied everything by two and a half. So, for instance, the, the ratio, predicted ratio between Earth and Mars in both is 1.6. Uh, but in the old system, um, it was the ratio of 1 to 1.6. In the new system, it's the ratio of 2.5 to 4, which is also 1.6. The significant difference in this, uh, which will be a help to us in a few minutes, is that in the old formula, the start of the series, which was 0.4, is not the same as its point of reference, which was 1. So the thing that we were referring to was somewhere in the middle of the series. So 0.4 and 1. Whereas in the new formula, the start of the series is also its point of reference, which is why it becomes mathematically simple. We're not trying to do this, this extra jujitsu of generating a series of ratios and comparing that series of ratios to an object somewhere arbitrarily in the middle of those series of ratios, which is what the old Vogue formula did. So without them really knowing about it or being aware of it, they were doing a kind of Ptolemaic, Earth-centered twist on the formula. Because we live on the Earth, it's important and everything is compared to the Earth. But really, mathematically, what's significant in a geometric series like that is the start of the series. So let's compare everything to the start of the series, wherever it might be, and let everything fall where it may. So in 1766, that was the formula. The new 2009 formula is simpler. The old formula generated a flawed series, which had this jump in it from minus infinity to zero. And it jumped because there were only two planets that fit those orbits. If our solar system had lots of planets uh, in between the Mercury and Venus, then they wouldn't have come up with that formula. But because they were, again, fitting the facts, fitting the formula to the known facts. What will be interesting in our botanical uh, leap here is when we look at other systems, are those other systems, will they have occupied orbits uh, in the orbits that in the solar system are unoccupied, kind of like our analogy with the hydrogen atom. The other difference is that the old formula compared the values of that series to a point of reference, which happened to be the Earth, within the series itself. So in both cases, the formula was ginked, the original formula was ginked by its making the Earth and the solar system the point of uh, making everything fit the facts of the solar system as we knew it. Um, what we're now beginning to be able to do uh, because of uh, just a, all of the data that's been coming in in the last 30 years is look at other orbital systems and free ourselves from the straitjacket of the daisy of the solar system. Um, now we're looking at roses and orchids and juniper berries and lots of other kinds of systems and seeing if there are stamens and pistils underneath the superficial differences between these systems.
it was when the formula got simple like that, I began, something began to twitch in me uh, because of my uh, limited knowledge, but a little knowledge of music. And what you're looking at now is the overtone series. Anytime you pluck a string, and let's say this string is such that it vibrates 110 times a second, it also vibrates at slightly less energy, at 220 vibrations per second, and it also vibrates with even less energy at 330 and so on, 440, 550, and so on. And it's the overtone series that gives each instrument a particular flavor. That's how we tell of oboe from a violin, because the oboe has a different harmonic series uh, different overtone series than the violin. And in fact, we can even tell the difference between a Stradivarius and another violin because the Stradivarius has a different overtone series than this other less good violin. So we're, when we listen to a note being played on a violin, or any note in fact, we're also hearing all these other notes. We don't notice them right away because the energy of them is less, but they're, they're as present in the note as the bouquet of flavors in a glass of wine are present that allow us to detect subtle differences uh, between different kinds of red wine. If we eliminate most of them and just go to the top three overtones, which are the main, uh, the, the dominant note, and then the two uh, overtones, and look at the formula for the second over the second overtone, no, the first overtone, second harmonic. Just make it a little louder, if you would, tiny bit. We have Bode's Law. So what does that mean? Um, and here I went into advanced Pythagorean mode, <laughs> leaping uh, ahead. What happens if we take Bode's formula and instead of the, the distance of beta, this, the, the, the start of the series, what if we plug in a note? Let's plug in a frequency there. What happens? And just to start somewhere, what if we plug in the note C, what we find is that we have a the, the Bode's law as it's formulated, given these two revisions that I made to it, uh, produces a series of notes that are in many cases 100% aligned with um, our musical scale. I, I should add that I'm, this is the scale of just intonation, uh, which is based on the true harmonic series rather than um, the, the even tempered scale, which is what we use uh, when we're playing the piano. So if we were to then play the solar system, uh, which is to say play the notes that are associated with 
the predictions for where the planets should be in the solar system, this is what we would get. I should emphasize again that I happened to do this in starting with C, but I could have started with any other of the notes of the musical scale. Uh, it's just I had to start somewhere in order to show it to you. So, but what you're, what you're really paying attention to here is not the specific note that I chose, but the ratio of those notes, which is what chordal structure in music is all about. It's not so much the absolute value of the notes themselves, it's the proportion of the notes that gives us this sense of musical harmony. Another way to represent this graphically is as a series of undulations uh, with the sun in the center, uh, but start at a certain distance from the sun, these undulations start. Once they start, each undulation is twice the distance of the other one um, relative to the, the previous one. And we can see the planets as sort of roulette, wheel, roulette balls occupying the troughs of these uh, curves. I don't mean by any uh, stretch of the imagination that this is actually physically what's happening. It's just a graphic representation that uh, in the case of Venus, for instance, it, Venus, for whatever reason, is making an almost perfect circle in the trough of that particular undulation, whereas Mars is more elliptical and it sort of rides up the side of the undulation and then rides down into the other side. So it's like the roulette ball when it's... Uh, uh, responding to different forces uh, acting on it. So let's see if we can take what we learned and extend them to other orbital systems that we know a lot about. Here's Jupiter and its four moons. We're looking at them in proportion. Uh, so Jupiter is a vast object compared to its moons. Here by point of reference is the Earth, the size of the Earth and the size of the moon. So the moon if the moon took off and became one of Jupiter's moons, it would seem to be uh, proportionately quite apt. And here are in an idealized form, this, these are the four moons of um, Jupiter. So we're looking at it uh, in a spreadsheet. If we look at the ratio of them to each other, we see that the ratio of Io to Europa is 1.59. The ratio of Europa to Ganymede is also 1.59. Ratio of Ganymede to Callisto is 1.76. If we think of this kind of as, as uh, a DNA test, we're, we're lining up to uh, a DNA sample with a larger part of sample. Let's look at the, this uh, idealized representation of the predicted ratios between subsequent planets. This is Bode's law prediction. 
but now let's take our sample and see if anything lines up. And sure enough, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto line up with Earth, Mars, and the, the center of the asteroid belt. 1.59 instead of 1.6, and 1.76 instead of 1.75. We're going to ignore, kind of in our renegade mode, we will ignore the um, Io, the moon Io, um, but that's part of this uh, exercise is to say, let's see if there are patterns, and if something doesn't fit, let's set what doesn't fit to one side and look, examine all of those later to see if there's some pattern to how they don't fit. So if we just look at the ones that do line up and make a spreadsheet based on uh, what we've already developed, and we take each of those values, uh, the orbit, and divide it by its titius bode number, we get the value for beta. Uh, and in each case, they're very close to each other. If we take the average of those, 68.29, and plug that into the formula, then the f it comes up with this uh, series of agreement, which is that the three outer moons of Jupiter fit the titius bode ratios to within 0.3%, so less, significantly less than 1% deviation. And, as we saw at the beginning, the, the proportion of these three moons are very close to the proportions between Earth, Mars, and Ceres. If we were to represent them musically, that's what how the, the audio equivalent of the circular graphics that we're looking at would sound. Io, in fact, does not fit. It falls in between two predicted orbits. And so we add it to our detention class, <laughs> and we'll find out if there's some reason why these kids are in detention. So Saturn, the next planet out, has nine large moons which have a diameter greater than 200 kilometers. 200 kilometers is small. Uh, on the other hand, there are many objects in the asteroid belt which are maybe five kilometers in diameter or even less. So in order to uh, get a better look at the landscape, uh, I've arbitrarily set the uh, bar at 200 kilometers in diameter. By point of reference, the, our moon is, uh, I think, almost 4,000 kilometers, you know, 3,500 kilometers in diameter. Five of the Saturn's moons fit the titius bode formula that we worked out. And by using this DNA matching system that I was talking about before, these are how the five moons fit. And we can see that it's 1.8% it's off, 0.33 off, 0.96 off, 1.3 off, and a little less than 1% off. What's significant here is the, we meet here this idea of virtual orbits because uh, the planet, uh, the moon Dione is occupying the Venus equivalent orbit. But So here we see two moons that are occupying these predicted but 
orbits that in the solar system are virtual, but in the Saturn system are in fact occupied, Tethys and Enceladus, and they, they converge on these orbits to within 0.3% or 1.8%. This is looking at those inner moons. Dione, remember, is where Venus would be, and if you remember the representation we did of this, these circles getting ever smaller and smaller up to a limit point, um, here are two moons that occupy these predicted but virtual orbits. But in fact, point of fact, in Saturn, they are not virtual. They are, in fact, occupied. If we were to hear the music for these uh, five moons, it would sound like this. Uranus, uh, using the same analysis, we see one of those moons, Miranda, uh, is in that one of those virtual orbits. Neptune, the next planet out, has four moons uh, that, that correspond to Titius Bode. Three inner moons. And one moon very far out, further out, relatively speaking, than Pluto is in our system. What's interesting, particularly about this object, is that Nereid's object uh, is highly, highly elliptical um, and very inclined to the plane of Neptune. So the evidence suggests that, and because it's so far out, it suggests that it's a captured object, that it's an it's asteroid uh, that fell into the orbit, was grabbed by the gravity of Neptune, and the fact that if it is a captured object, that it fits Titius Bode is a strong indication that Titius Bode can impose its will on objects that fall into the system. So it's not simply an artifact of the original evolution of the system, but that things that come into the system uh, eventually wind up uh, being falling in, in stable orbits, falling into the right distance. Two of Neptune's large moons don't fit. We add them to the list of renegades. It's interesting also that even though these two moons are well smaller than the 200-kilometer uh, cutoff point, Mars has two moons, two small ones, which are probably also captured asteroids, and they fit Titius Bode to 0.03%. And they fall into the so-called the so Mercury orbit and the Earth orbit. Oh.
looking at the non-renegade objects, there are, 20, there are th 36 objects that we were studying of 200 kilometers or larger. 27 of them fit Titius Bode to a few percent. So roughly, whatever that is, uh, three quarters of the objects. What's also interesting is if you do a bell curve of where those objects fall, six of them fall into Earth-equivalent orbits, and then nicely varying on either side, uh, five of them fall into Mars orbits, and four, uh, four of them fall into Venus orbits. So there's something attractive about where the Earth is in other systems. Uh, relatively speaking, again, this is all relative. We, we collected nine renegades uh, in detention. Is there anything similar about them? Well, Neptune, Io, Titan, and Oberon, and Galatea all fall very close to exactly at the midpoint between two predicted orbits. And if we were to represent all of the objects that fit the classic formula, they would look like that. So there's a, this is a statistical distribution of those 27 objects. You can see them magnetically clustered around something, which is the Titius Bode, uh, let's call it a strange attractor, that something is pulling them in there. Nine objects don't fit, but five of them are seemingly attracted to this midpoint uh, between two orbits. And if we were to plug Io into the formula uh, as a midpoint, we'd see that it, it uh, is you know, half a percent off the exact midpoint of uh, the distance between the two adjacent orbits. I should point out that, in fact, the distance between uh, orbit minus four and orbit minus three is simply duplicated in the distance between minus three and Io's orbit. So to talk about midpoints, I'm really just saying that Io, Io duplicates, rather than doubling the previous orbit, it simply reproduces the previous orbit. And if we were to look at the solar system with Neptune in the midpoint, it fits with a, um, around a, it's a little less than 4% off the predicted orbit. So I think I'm going to end it there. Uh, it goes on and examines some of the, the ex extrasolar system planets. Uh, and similarly, we know about, uh, there, there are about 36 multiple planet systems out there that we know of, and about three quarters of them do in fact show this Titius-Bode kind of ratio. So it's, it's uh, just to, to summarize it, I, the, the, other than the, the mathematical tweaking that I've been doing, the main difference is that this is trying to outline a tendency in orbital systems. It's not that every orbital system has to fall like gears in a machine or like the atomic structure exactly at certain distances. We're talking about large macro structures uh, in which there is a great deal of chance and uh, other influences that are working, but underneath that, there is, there seems to be anyway, some kind of uh, something 
that is causing these objects, whether they're moons of large moon, uh, planets or planets re revolving around large stars, that causes them to fall into, when they are in stable orbits, uh, to fall into these patterns. And that, that key is the stability. I, I think, I mean, we're talking about, in the case of the solar system, something that has been apparently around for four billion years. That's a long, long time. And it's not that, uh, in fact, physically, you can go into any orbit you want, as we know from sending satellites into space. It's just that what I'm suggesting is that in the long term, there are certain orbits that will become stable uh, and certain orbits that will not become stable uh, or that are not stable to begin with. And that, uh, that when we look at the orbits, that look at these stable orbits, that they seem to fall into this particular pattern that was outlined uh, 200 years ago uh, by uh, Titius and Bode. So I'd love to... Thank you. Bring things to an end. Can you put the light on? Sorry that uh, I'm, I'm really very happy to have done this because it gives me a chance to really. Can we bring Walter's chair up so he can yeah. sit? Thanks. Um, let, let it all hang out, so to speak. Um, but the most important thing is if you have any questions or observations, I'd love to hear them because this will help me carry the research further. Walter, let me start with a few. First of all, thank you. That was fabulous. And let me just start with a couple. I guess my, my fundamental question is, what do you make of this in the sense that what do you make of the, the fact, the hypothesis or the fact that uh, these stable uh, relationships are so closely aligned with our idea of musical structure. Why would that be? Well, um, the, I mean, the short two-word, three-word answer is I don't know. Um, but what's, what's fascinating about it um, is that it hints not that the planets cause music to be the way it is or that music causes planets to be in the orbits that they are, but that both of them are responding to something that is perhaps deeper than either of them. Um, and it addresses that question uh, which is posed uh, frequently in music, which is, is music simply a human construction, a language to which we have become accustomed and therefore we value it because of its familiarity, but that it's an arbitrary structure? Camille Saint-Saëns, the, the composer, believed that this was the case, and many people in musical history have believed this. Many, of course, have not. Uh, but what this indicates, uh, along with many other things, uh, you know, the, the fact that birds use uh, similar harmonic structures and, and lots of other things about how objects vibrate, but it indicates that there is something uh, going on that is deeper than, than simply an arbitrary decision um, in human beings setting up a certain pattern of, of ratios. By the same token, I, I think doing our comparative botanical astronomy, uh, it suggests that as different as orbital, as different orbital systems are compared to the, comparing the solar system to the uh, Jupiter system and comparing that to some of the exoplanet systems we know, 
as recently as 15 years ago, and in fact, still, for all I know, there is a uh, theory uh, that the planets of our solar system were ripped out of the sun uh, by a passing star and fell into the orbits that they fell into as a result of the force of that collision or near collision. But if that's the case, then the same thing happened, had to happen with Jupiter and its moons and Saturn and its moons because of this, the great similarity that we see underlying those things, it suggests that that probably isn't the case, that uh, it's too much to ask that in each case there was this passing object that pulled out these things and made them fall into this particular alignment that they do. And it's much more likely that we began with an original uh, cloud of gas and dust and that the sun coalesced, but that there were other coalescences that became planets. And within the planets themselves, there were little balls of dust that coalesced as Jupiter and its moons. Um, we, we will, I mean, we're in an incredibly exciting time now because of all of the exoplanet discoveries. Uh, and so we'll, things are generally more peculiar than we thought they were out there. Uh, there are all these hot Jupiter planets, uh, which were not predicted when we started out uh, discovering exoplanets. Uh, they thought that this would be uh, very anomalous, but in fact, it turns out that most of the 300 exoplanets that we've discovered are hot Jupiter planets, which is to say a, a very large Jupiter mass object, or even bigger, rotating very close to the, its, its parent star, closer even than Mercury is to the sun. Um, so, it, in essence, it, it, uh, I don't know what, what to make of it. Um, I, I think if, if uh, w what I would hope for any of this research, if it leads anywhere, is that it, it will make the people who really can do the advanced mathematics and physics take a second look at, at something that has been so long in the dustbin of astronomical history that it's, there's almost a, a uh, aversion uh, therapy. There, there's... Uh, People who, take, who go into astronomy are taught very early to stay away from Bode's Law. Uh, yeah. and, but if, if we do these little adjustments to it, we can see that maybe something is going on there. And exactly what's going on may lead to something that uh, would be very interesting. Great. Uh, so I, it's just I, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that some of this information will cause somebody somewhere to take another look at right. what's going on. Thank you. Before I open it up, just a very brief uh, uh, announcement. Those of you who have been here before know that the new school operates on a homeopathic budget. And in the course of the question period, I pass a hat for those of you who are willing to uh, put something in it to keep the new school going. So there's no pressure, but I'll just start the hat moving around while people are asking questions and open the floor. Who has questions? Yes, yeah. right here. Maybe we are created um, from the sounds of the universe. It seems like Earth has a sound and harmonic. And the sun, the sun does too. Uh, yeah, certainly I think they're, they're 
to you know, and and more people get into stuff like string theory. That 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 whole theory is based on the idea that underneath electrons are things in other dimensions that are like strings that are vibrating at certain frequencies, and depending on the frequency, you get a certain kind of so-called atomic subatomic object. So yeah, there's lots to be discovered about vibration. Um, been bringing in complementary alternative <coughs> practices, but now I've got practitioners who are in color, light, and sound, so it's more vibrational medicine yeah. mm -hmm. uh, practitioners that I'm yeah. representing yeah. sound healing for one. Yeah. So Thank you. Mike and then Burr. Uh, when you drop a pebble in the still water, the concentric circles, right. and if you freeze that as a pattern and dissect it, I, I had hoped early on that that's what it would be, um, but it isn't. It, uh, it, it, the distances between the peaks of the waves are, um, are, aside from some little chaos at the beginning, they, are, they duplicate each other, um, rather than this doubling of each other, which is what we see in, in these ripples. So, but something may come out of that, uh, but it, that was my first... Uh, I, I bought a number of books on, on what, the dynamics of water and uh, how all of that goes, and, and nothing, it, it didn't, yeah, it, it, it didn't immediately go, there, that's it. Uh, something may still come out of that. Burr and then this gentleman here. Walter, uh, uh, other than the aversion that, uh, that professional astronomers or academic astronomers have for Bode's Law, the astronomers you've talked to, what's what sort of the, do you see some glimmers that, uh, you know, of a, a spark somewhere from any of them that, uh, and if so, what, yeah, catch, what they, catches their fancy? Um, I, th I think they're, they're, they're troubled by three things. Uh, they're troubled by the fact that somebody's talking about Bode's Law. Uh, they're troubled that somebody then talks about music and the music of the spheres, which is even more of a no-go area than Bode's Law, and they're troubled that it's a film editor talking to them. Uh, and so it just, they haven't, I, I haven't made that connection, with one exception, which is an astronomer named Halton Arp, uh, who is one of the early researchers in quasars. Uh, and, and yet he has his own renegade uh, ideas about what quasars are uh, that deviate from the official astronomical uh, line, and he's been exiled to the Planck Institute in Germany. <laughs> he, he, he simply couldn't get any job in the United States, and so he's working you know, quite productively, but, um, it, but in Germany. Um, so he, he's been the only person that has responded to this in a very positive way. I mean, in, in the sense that you're talking about it. I'm, I'm giving this presentation again at NYU at the end of the month, um, and I've been told that there will be some uh, astronomers there who will pay attention to me, um, and I can talk to them afterwards. So uh, we'll see. So this is a good warm-up for that. Yeah. yeah. This gentleman and then the gentleman there. My question is, I, I, I missed your, the first uh, 20 minutes, but you keep on referring to uh, the orbits as being circles instead of uh, ellipses. This is idealized, yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, so the, the, it's almost like you're taking motion out of the... Uh, yeah, in fact, not only motion, but mass, which is another part of the problem with Bode's Law from a, from a strict point of view, is that uh, planets seem, or, or moons, seem to fall into these orbits irrespective of their mass. I kept talking about Ceres. Well, Ceres, compared to Jupiter, is a speck of dust, uh, and yet it adheres to its Bodian orbit with as much precision as Jupiter does. Why is that? Uh, it, it doesn't, uh, the, the fact that we're, we're talking about idealized, you know, I represent them as circles, but really what I'm talking about is the average distance of the planet from its, or the moon from its primary object. Um, and so I represent that as a perfect circle. In fact, it's elliptical, and in some cases extremely elliptical, and yet if you, like Nirid, and yet if you say, all I'm interested in is the average distance, and I don't care about the mass of the object, then Nirid fits uh, with this, uh, you know, two, two and a half percent precision with, its with the orbit that is predicted for an object around um, that planet. So yes. it's, uh, th these are challenges to be mm. overcome. And it's, it's part of the reason that Bode's Law, and that was the fourth, the number four in Gauss's uh, objection is it doesn't, we, we can't explain why this should be true. Yes. I had the same question in the other four people. Uh, ordinarily when people speak in these terms, they speak of mass, speed, you know, gravity concepts. And you know the rotation of the object, the speed, its mass, all having to do with its gravitational pulls, and that that somehow gives the sense of why it's an elliptical orbit and why they would take those positions. Right. And I didn't hear you mention any of that. I was curious why you. I'm sorry, I don't quite why you get deleted those concepts. I don't quite get the question. <laughs> oh, it's what happened to speed, rotation, mass, the usual gravitational concepts of why it is a, an elliptical orbit, not a circular one, and right. why it would be why you're not using any of those terms in this discussion. Right. Because it doesn't, Bode's Law doesn't take any of those things into account. Right. But, again, the, the concept then is, is Bode's Law only a reflection of a series of concepts that linked up because they were seeing the conception of what that would be. And now we look at it deriving the same concept from another form, saying we've got mass, speed, other gravitational elements of it. Right. Or just another way of seeing the same pattern in a different form. Yeah. Uh, well, in, in part of um, what I'm researching is the exact positions. Here we were talking about things being 2 or 3% off. In fact, if you talk about orbital resonance, where the, the mass of the object and the, 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 the speed of the object uh, do come into account, then you can you can see that the orbital resonance that there is an orbital resonance between Jupiter and Ceres uh, of two and a half. That uh, Ceres orbits two and a half times faster than Jupiter does, and if you pull if you take that into account, then it's within 0.99 percent rather than 0.5 percent. So my hunch is that. There is something, and I don't know what it is, causing stable orbits to fall into 
Bodian patterns. Um, the exact position of the planets is then tweaked by things that have to do with the mass of the planets and which has to do with orbital resonance between adjacent or even subadjacent planets or moons. Let me come back to a couple of final questions, Walter. Um, I have heard it said that the universe emits a background hum of some kind. Um, have you speculated about the nature of that hum in relationship to this research? And mm. I, I haven't. Okay. I haven't. And uh, a related question uh, in this, uh, these conversations with Michael Ondaatje, uh, he mentions your interest or acquaintance with Rupert Sheldrake's work on morphic right. resonance. Right. Uh, is, in terms of those sort of stable relationships that you uh -huh. see here, have you thought about Sheldrake's sense of morphic resonance? Uh, I have. I mean, I read Sheldrake at the same time that I was doing this kind of research. And I don't, I don't know that there's, uh, I can pull anything out of it. He's a biologist, mm -hmm. and he's talking about uh, that in terms of the evolution of biological forms. Mm -hmm. um, whether that applies to this, um, I don't know. There, there is, a, as we've seen, a self-similarity to objects in the solar system and then subsystems within the solar system, whether that has something to do mm -hmm. with Sheldrakean uh, things, I don't know. And w but here we also are finding the same things in other systems within the, within the galaxy. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, too, it's too mysterious at, right. at this point. Um, I, I think if you... Uh, shoved me up against the wall right now and said, you've got to have some idea of why this is happening, I'd say uh, two things. One of, them, one of them is that science is very tolerant uh, about uh, physical explanations or the lack of them depending on utility. For instance, Kepler's, the elliptical orbits of the planets were there was no explanation for why this should be. In fact, he was bothered by this fact, but he said, it's true. And you, you can read most of uh, 17th century, the history of 17th century science as people being driven slightly crazy by this because it meant that they had to throw out all of Aristotelian science, if that was true. You mean we have to do that because they're elliptical? It doesn't seem to be a bargain. And things only got rescued when Newton came along and he said the reason they're elliptical is because of universal gravitation. Everyone was a big sigh of relief because after 60 years, Newton had explained uh, Kepler. On the other hand, Kepler's formulas were very useful because the tables, you, if you used Kepler's elliptical orbits, the tables that we got, which were very useful in navigation, were an order of magnitude better than anything came before. So I'll, I'll use anything that makes sure my ship doesn't crash. And what that's based on is elliptical orbits. In the background are people, uh, um, Halley, uh, of Halley's Comet, saying, why is it true? And he eventually contacted Newton, who was a young, younger man, and Newton said, well, I know the answer. It's because of this. 
and Newton's book was the result. Similarly, Newton had no idea why gravity worked. You know, the famous, I, I make no hypothesis. I just describe what it is. I have no idea why it works at a distance. How can one thing attract another thing over large volumes of empty space? I don't know. You're a and it was only Einstein later on who said it's because of this and this. But Newton's formulas were very useful, uh, and so people didn't, it, it was, it, their lack of explanation of gravity didn't bother them because we could use them. The problem with Bode's law is that there is no, we, ha, we don't know what the use of this is. If that formula were instantly turned into money in people's pockets, um, then people would say, oh, it, it, we're going to use it because it's useful. We'll figure out why it's true later. But Bode's law is in this awkward position of maybe it's true, maybe it isn't, but it doesn't seem to have any utility. Uh, therefore, why is it true becomes much more important. Anyway, the, if, uh, again, to, if you said, all right, tell me what you think it is, I, I would say it's got something to do with standing gravity waves. That there's some, we, we are now pretty sure that gravity waves are moving imperceptibly through uh, the universe, certainly through our galaxy, and if it's, we haven't detected them yet. We haven't, they're only known mathematically, they're not known through experiment, but there are big expensive experiments out there trying to detect them. But if, if they are, they're very, very weak and would make themselves felt only on the scale of hundreds of millions or billions of years. So it might be that there is an undulation in gravity waves uh, similar to that drawing that I had there of the peaks and troughs, but seen in three dimensions and that planets fall into zones between peaks and troughs of these gravity waves. And you certainly couldn't make this felt in any human time scale or even any time scale uh, in the hundreds of millions of years, but you might see it begin to happen on the scale of billions of years. Walter Murch, thank you for being with us at the New School. Sure. Thank you.